Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. February 8th, 2024, the Congress can't aid, can't arm, can't legislate, can't impeach edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I can, however, introduce Emily Vazlon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And I can also introduce John Dickerson of CBS Primetime in New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. This week on the GabFest, a shambolic Republican Congress fails to impeach the DHS secretary, suffocates its own immigration and aid bill at birth, botches an Israel aid bill, but will any of it actually hurt Republicans at the ballot box? Then judges reject Trump's claim of criminal immunity while the Supreme Court hears arguments today about whether Trump should be barred from the presidential ballot. Then Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of Michigan school shooter Ethan Crumbly, was convicted of manslaughter, is prosecuting negligent parents for their children's crimes just and right. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Republicans in the House failed in their effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas this week when a handful of them refused to vote for such a transparently political impeachment uh, it was an embarrassing spectacle, but just one of many this week for Republicans who also failed to muster votes to pass an Israel aid bill, even as Republicans in the Senate spent a lot of time creating a tough immigration bill linked to aid to Israel and Ukraine before they then simply murdered it, crushed it, uh, choked the life out of it before it left the delivery room. So, John, the fingerprints on everything that's happening here go back to Trump and the magnified Republican Party. What what do all these all this chaos and and m- these missteps have in common? Well, I think that's a pretty good pretty good pretty good place to put most of the energy with respect to the immigration bill because the energy is two things. It's Donald Trump, but it's also the view that sees legislating in the compromise is necessary for it as distasteful. And the fantasy, which goes back to Trump and what he used to say in 2016, which is I alone can do it. And the fantasy that, um, well, if if Trump comes in to be president, um, it'll it'll work out. We'll get what we want. That's not to say that it's clearly the case that if Trump were president, even though he would be stymied by a lot of the things that stymied him the first time and that stymied Biden, in terms of presidents can't act unilaterally, as Chip Roy, a Republican from Texas, pointed out, he may not be stymied, but he's obviously would do everything, including um, probably breaking laws, which would be fine with him in order to um, enforce the border. It would also obviously send a message that would stop pulling migrants who think uh, that the president has favorable views about them. So I'm not saying things wouldn't be different, but I'm saying the kind of magical thinking about um, what you can do in Congress um, that doesn't require the compromises of legislation um, is also a part of this moment. Emily, with the immigration bill, which is maybe the most interesting case here, because the Mayorkas impeachment was always it was always charade. Uh, but the immigration bill, the Republicans spent a bunch of time. They, they McConnell deputized James Lankford, a pretty conservative senator, to negotiate something, and then Kate got a bill that. Border Patrol unions endorsed, got a bill that was very, very much stricter and and uh, 
tighter on immigration than anything Democrats would ever have gone along with absent really difficult political circumstances. And then uh, Republicans are just like, nah, we will not act on this because it's more important to somehow advantage Trump and Republicans in the election than it is to actually secure the border they're obsessed with. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary. Is that is that a wise decision politically, regardless of whether it is uh, moral? I mean, it looks unwise to me. You know, I'm maybe I'll be wrong, but it just seems like, okay, there was this moment in which because there's so many people trying to get into the country, and I think because these northern cities feel inundated, there has been political pressure on the Democrats and on the Biden administration to agree to concessions that you know, a year or two ago, they would never have agreed to. So then you get this pretty draconian bill, 370 pages long. And then the Republicans basically like throw it all up into the air like confetti because Trump tells them to. And so their calculation, obviously, is that the politics of defying Trump are worse for them than the politics of ripping up their bill and that there'll be some way in which they can still blame Democrats for this. But I thought that Biden did a pretty good job of saying, like, wait a second, now you own the border not being secure. John, what do you think? Well, I think it's three things. I think it's Trump for sure. You don't want to be crossways with Trump, especially if you have a Republican primary you might be facing if you're up for reelection in this year. You also want to use it as a cudgel against um, Biden because there are real failures of the Biden administration. Um, and it, it's very favorable turf for uh, Republicans distinct from the president. It's uh, the former president. It's good turf for him, though it's messy. So you just want that alive for sure. And also, I still think it's this magical thinking, which is um, somehow even you can convince yourself you have policy disagreements with the text of the bill um, and the expectations of what could ever get passed in the future are um, or be done through executive action under a Trump presidency are out of line with reality. Um, and so, you know, in the past, when people have compromised for legislation, it's required some realization that this is the best we're ever going to get, or it has required an interest in the idea of using political leverage to score points immediately by passing legislation. I mean, they have leverage over Democrats and Biden, the Republicans do. And but what's been lost is the idea of using leverage to do anything other than elect presidents or using leverage to do anything other than regain control of the House of Congress that you might no longer be um, in control of. And those two things, the nationalization of all issues to presidential and the f many flips of control of Congress since 1980 in both the House and the Senate have created the environment that we're in. And that's all and that's all a part of this. And I guess, Don, also, would you add just how uncompetitive most of the House races are. Like the reason the primary dynamic matters so much is that's the actual race. And if you're not really going to be in a competitive general election, then that's what you care about. And all of those incentives go in the direction you just said. 100%. Excellent point. And it's the reason why when people say, you know what I'd long for is those days when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would get together over a glass of bourbon and they'd get things passed or dirt, dirt, dirt. So what they forget about that is that there were upwards of 100 bull weevil Democrats, people who were in members of Congress who were in districts that were voted to Congress, but whose districts voted for Reagan for president. So they had, just as you say, Emily, what current members of Congress don't have, which is cross, cross pressures politically. So you had a bunch of Democrats who needed to be in support, at least at some level, with the Republican president because their constituents cared about that. None of that structural um, pressure exists anymore. And then just finally on the political question, I'm not so sure this is ever going to be good for Biden because 
you don't want to be on the turf that the other that is good for the other guy. And at the at the end of the day, if somebody cares about the border, there's no question that Donald Trump is going to reduce migration, both just by the vibes he sends. And also because the Biden administration has admitted something liberals didn't want to admit, which is that policies are a draw. Obviously, there are things happening in the region that push um, migrants out of Venezuela and other countries. But there is, and the Biden administration has recognized, a draw, from whether it's from Haiti or South America, to the vibe sent by an American president. And those obviously would be quite different under Trump. Not And he would also let governors do what they want to do and so forth. So if you're thinking about who is going to be tougher on the border, and that's a, that matters to you, and you end up maybe feeling like, you know, damn it, let's just get this solved. Like, Trump's your guy. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this spasm of joy that Democrats seem to have been feeling, like, oh, they they screwed up the impeachment of Mayorkas and they can't even pass their own immigration bill was, was uh, misguided. I think the idea that this willful refusal to legislate and the manifest incompetence and partisan motivations, that that's going to somehow hurt Republicans seems off base because it I, I mean, I go back to a theme I hit over and over again. This amplifies the idea that Congress and Washington are unable to act. Politics is broken. And that narrative favors the people who are authoritarian sympathizing, the people who are anti-political voters. And those people are very Trumpist and overwhelmingly Trumpist. And so so they are, their narrative has been reinforced. And also, insofar as the border is more chaotic, even if Republicans have slightly helped it because they have refused to pass their own immigration bill, that helps, as John just said, that is a something that animates and activates Trump sympathizing voters. So I just, as a political issue, everything that happened this week, I feel like it's embarrassing for Republicans. It's embarrassing they can't, you know, get get 200 and X number, 218 people to vote for something, but it is not actually politically going to harm them. Uh, it will harm the country. It will harm Ukraine. It will harm Israel. It will make the border more chaotic, perhaps, but it will not harm Republicans politically in November. All right. You've persuaded me. I've lost this argument. Just for the record. Let me make the counter argument, which is um, the way it, I think, could help uh, a Biden reelection and help Democrats is if they shift the turf. So in other words, this isn't really about the, the border anymore. It's about a chaos presidency and a chaos party. And that even on issues that they say they care about, they really don't. The only thing they care about is their power, which means both they aren't going to solve the problems you're worried about. And what they will do is gain power and put somebody in the office who will be chaotic and wreck all kinds of other things. The border is not the only issue a president has to deal with. In fact, a president has to deal with lots of things that people don't even know about. Many of them are surprises, like a global pandemic. And that if this is the root, what you're seeing in this issue that they say they care about is just the same kind of chaos you see across all issues. Uh, and it's a chaos enabled by people in Congress, people like Mitch McConnell, who used to be a deal maker, um, no longer have the power of the party. So that if you want utter and total chaos, this is an example of what you're going to get across all issues. So they have to shift the turf from border to chaos, which, uh, you know, is more difficult, but it's also not impossible, given that there are daily examples and daily illustrations of chaos and how this magical thinking is incompatible with actually governing. Let's end by pouring one out for Mitch McConnell. So McConnell was unable to corral his party the way he has traditionally been able to, although of all people, he should know 
he knows the value of election year inaction. Uh, he is the world's master of election year inaction. So he's he shouldn't have been surprised by this. But it does look, Emily, like we're coming to the end of McConnell's time on top. I mean, I would strongly suspect that if the Republicans hold the Senate majority, which they will, that he will not be the majority leader. If he's replaced by John Cornyn, probably nothing very much changes. John Cornyn is very much in the mold uh, of McConnell. But I always had a little soft spot in my heart for someone who is a politician. And I like politicians who act like politicians, which Mitch McConnell always did, even though his what he was trying to accomplish was not what I hoped would be accomplished in the world. I mean, he could retire. He's got some health issues. Seems like you could sort of go off into the mist. It might be the moment. But yeah, it was interesting that this whole setup with Lankford negotiating, writing the bill, like that was, that's how you do it. And they did it and it just completely blew up in their faces. And it was interesting. Well, I don't know. I thought it was, John, was it there were several senators who started calling for McConnell to step down this week. Now, was that noteworthy or those like I don't I knew I was like, oh, Ted Cruz. But there were a bunch of other people too, Vance, Hawley. Ted Cruz hates him. All those guys hate him. And they're all auditioning for leadership positions in a MAGA world. And so um, this is all uh, an effort to kind of figure out the pecking order post McConnell, which affirms what David's saying, which is this is the this is the end of McConnell. Um, uh, and, but, but Cruz obviously doesn't like McConnell and never has. Um, um, and it was hysterical for, to hear Ted Cruz complain that it was obvious this was never going to work, the Langford plan, that it was obvious it was never going to work. And why did they bother? You might remember that when he tried to, uh, take down the Affordable Care Act, um, it was obvious that his gambit was never going to work and it, it, um, made Republicans look foolish at the time. So he has come into the wisdom that, uh, the passage of years has some, has given all of us. I mean, one thing that's interesting, but I think only interesting in a kind of Senate that doesn't exist anymore. But one of Cornyn's criticisms of this, which is interesting and, and goes to your point, David, that he's auditioning to replace McConnell, is he said essentially the process wasn't followed, that the bill was was cooked up by Langford in negotiations and that it wasn't go- taken through the committee system. So that's both true and the committee system is better, but it doesn't mean if it had gone through the committee system, it would have been any better. The reason you often have to cook these um, compromise deals up is that negotiating in public is a disaster because the bill gets defined by one, one little moment in a committee hearing room. However, what's extraordinary about this is there was the heckler's veto before anybody knew what was in the bill. And the heckler's veto came from those who were taking signals from Donald Trump to say this bill is awful, which which basically in terms of legislating is deadly because it means that legislators no longer have any free will. Um, and that's a big problem. If you worry, if you, if you believe that government is a business of legislating to address problems. Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? Yeah, Emily said yes this week. You should stick around for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members only. Today, we're going to be talking about whether Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman have restored America to greatness, peace and prosperity. This segment, though, is just for Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you, because of your support. We've been able to keep the GapFest going for so many years. If you're not a Slate Plus member, consider signing up. We'd love it. You get bonus segments on every episode. These bonus segments are some of the very best things that we do. They're very fun. Uh, You also get those on other Slate podcasts. You get discounts to live shows. You don't hit the paywall on the Slate site. Much more. So if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? 
cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Emily, we have a, a pileup, a logjam, an atmospheric river of Trump legal <laughs> drama this week. Earlier this week, we had an appeals court panel vigorously rejecting Trump's claim that he was immune from criminal prosecution for anything he may have done while president. Um, and so we'll talk about the consequences of that. But we have just finished up. We're taping a little bit late this segment because this morning and early into this afternoon, the Supreme Court heard arguments in the case out of Colorado about whether the former president can be barred from the presidential ballot in Colorado for being an insurrectionist under uh Clause three of the 14th Amendment or Article three quick clause. Section three of the 14th Amendment. Section three. Section three. Section three. So, um, so Emily, you have just uh, paid close attention to this argument. It seems pretty clear that the Supreme Court is is not going to keep uh, is not going to bar Trump from the ballot. Trump will be on the ballot. um, And it seems that most if not all of the justices maybe they'll get a nine nothing on this but what what did you hear and what where do they seem to be headed one thing that seems clear is that these cases one could come out in trump's favor and one could come out against him and i hate to start there because it suggests that there's a kind of balancing going on that isn't simply about the merits of each case but gee the supreme court might prefer an outcome like that especially chief justice roberts because it will just have the appearance of being even-handed. So in the Colorado ballot case, it seemed like it was at least eight to one for keeping Trump on the ballot. And there were some different arguments that different justices seemed uh, the most amenable to. The main one was the idea that the states cannot kick somebody off the presidential ballot without some kind of action from Congress to disqualify him. And Kagan, Justice Kagan kind of said this the most clearly. She just basically said, like, isn't this a national issue? And kind of how can it be that a single state could get to decide who gets to be president of the United States? And that was really interesting to me because there has been this whole argument, which is like, let's leave it to the states. That actually would be the most modest thing for the Supreme Court to do. But there was a lot of concern among the justices, including Chief Justice Roberts, but a lot of them, that that would just result in chaos and all kind of payback um, against, you know, other candidates in the future. They were really worried about consequences, not so much the text of the 14th Amendment, though they talked about that, too. 
Can I ask you about that, Emily? Because it seems to me, and you'll quickly quickly tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't every case that gets to, or a lot of the cases that get to the Supreme Court, that's always an avenue of possible concern is A, what will happen if it if we rule this way? And that if you let the worst implementation of a ruling keep you from ruling, you'd never rule on anything. So how is this different? I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying, what is it that, that constrains them here that wouldn't in another case where they would say, yeah, well, this this issue has been raised by Texas and it's going to affect every other state and every other state's going to have to deal with the ruling. But we're deciding on this issue and that's just what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're like a strict textualist uh, and you're not supposed to be thinking about practical consequences, which is at least what Thomas and Gorsuch claim for themselves, that would appear to govern. And it's actually this interesting uh, tension with the immunity case, because in the immunity case, the D.C. Circuit, a different group of judges, but still one of the things they made a big deal of saying was like, we're not going to let Trump's claims about how, you know, other presidents in the future will be afraid to exercise their authority decide this case. They were not interested in the kind of parade of horribles. But for the ballot case, it seemed like it had a lot of legs. I mean, I will say that I don't think that's going to the consequences are going to like lead the eight to one or nine to zero opinion that we're likely to see. What they're going to say is more about, OK, when the 14th Amendment passed, states weren't um, kicking anybody off the ballot. That was about holding office. It was a moment where we were talking about federal control and Congress and federal power, although the 14th Amendment does talk about state offices as well. But states didn't have the same role in deciding who went on the ballot. And so I think they'll try to ground their ruling in history, even though it was pretty clear that those consequences were troubling to them. Emily, it's it seems clear they are not going to get to the question about whether Trump was an insurrectionist. They're going to find a way to keep him on the ballot without dealing with it. They're, they're, it's not relevant to relate to whatever finding they're likely to make. Yeah, they didn't talk about it very much. I mean, one thing that came up was Justice Kavanaugh said, well, did Trump really get enough due process here to put on his defense that he didn't commit insurrection? And he talked about how somebody was like, I don't know, it was a lawyer or a law professor, like, I've never seen a proceeding like this before. As if, like that. Um, <laughs> of course, the thing about Trump is the reason you haven't seen these things in court before is nobody's been accused of the things he's been accused of. And so he has this distorting effect. But totally agree, David. The justices are not interested in weighing in on, directly on whether Trump engaged in insurrection or gave aid and comfort to it. And I have to say, like, that maybe that's the best thing because this is not really played out in the courts yet. Um, the lower courts in, in other, in the criminal context, at least. And for them to make a big statement about it now would have a big political impact. I, I kind of feel for them that this is not their job. Although the, in some of the questions, Alito anyway, um, I think it was Alito. It might I can't remember who else it might've been when they went down into the parade of horribles, um, and again, and I guess I, what I would I, I don't mean to ascribe bad motives to the questioning, although plenty of people do, because I think sometimes Kavanaugh, two of his questions that he asked, whatever his motivations were, they ended up getting answers that were, if you assumed he was on the side of Donald Trump, that were contrary to Trump's case. Um, both the answer you just referred to and another time when he talked about disenfranchisement, the lawyer in in support of the 
um, plaintiff in this case gave his best answer on that one to to a question by uh, Kavanaugh. But um, it, it was raised in a couple of instances, the idea that insurrection would be you know, brought up all the time after this. Alito at one point said, well, you know, imp- impeachment wasn't around for 100 years and now there have been three of them, which seemed to me to water down the particular insurrection we're dealing with by saying, well, it's just like any other insurrection and it's not a very big thing, which does kind of weigh in on the side of diminishing the the importance of what happened on January 6th. Yeah, totally. And I mean, what Jason Murray, the lawyer for the Colorado voters said was, well, courts can decide whether it's really an insurrection or not. Like if this turns into a political chit and like they say Biden committed an insurrection, et cetera, like there can be fact finding that just puts that to rest. So if if the court is going to find that it is not in the ambit of states, it is not within the, the doctor's bag of every state to keep people off of the presidential ballot for this reason. Is Section 3 applicable to presidential candidates some in some other fashion? If con- Could Congress pass something that would keep somebody off? Or is it just simply not applicable to a president because states can't apply it to their presidential ballot, which is where presidents get voted on? One thing the court could say, and Alito was really interested in this, and I think Kavanaugh. So Section 3 talks about holding office. It doesn't talk about running for office. So they could say Section 3 is about holding office, and the remedy here is after you win, then you can get disqualified. I mean, if they say that Congress has to then like pass a law to disqualify you, that just seems at odds with the text because the text is the opposite. The text says Congress can like dis- decide to remove this problem, this disability. So I kind of think that's unlikely, but maybe they'll say that Congress has to take a vote, like there has to be some kind of action, but that it's not something that the states can resolve on the way to running for office, even though, of course, like that is not necessary. Well, I don't know. What would be crazy? Here's a crazy scenario. I'm not saying this would happen. But if you're saying that a state that Congress can can have a vote after someone is elected to office, then you can imagine a situation where, where a president is elected and the House and Senate are held by the opposite party. And the House and Senate are like, you know what? I think he that guy looks a little bit like he was an insurrectionist. I think we should have a vote. And there is a majority vote in Congress. And that person who has just been elected is not allowed to hold office because Congress has made a vote. It does seem weird to allow a congressional vote, a sort of 51 votes in the Senate and 218 in the House to just DQ someone who was just elected president and is otherwise yeah. qualified. Weird and bad. And I guess they're just counting on that not happening. So who puts the disability on? Right. So we don't know the answer to that question. I mean, historically, there's one case, this case that got a lot of play today from 1870. It was by Salmon Chase. It's an opinion. He's not a Supreme Court justice when he writes the opinion, but later he turns into one. So it's supposed to be a big deal. It's called Griffin's case. And that case said that Section 3 had to have some legislation to go into effect. It could not be what's called self-executing. I'm always just been really skeptical of that decision. Chase famously didn't like this whole disqualifying provision to begin with. He was against it politically. Um, And it just seems like that's not what the words of the Constitution say. Uh, So, yeah, that but that's I mean, they could Kavanaugh clearly was like super into the salmon chase theory of the matter. Let's say Trump gets elected. I mean, possible other arguments are that it doesn't uh, that Section three doesn't apply to the presidency, which there was that debate about that. And 
Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson seemed quite intellectually honest in her questions. It was interesting to sort them by intellectual honesty. And she seemed really uh, to be interested in finding out what the situation was, not necessarily arguing for a case through her questions. Um, and, you know, when she said, yeah, like, why isn't it listed? But isn't the answer that if it were listed, it would essentially be redundant? I guess so. I mean, she was basically begging Jonathan Mitchell, who's Trump's lawyer, to make a bigger deal out of the fact that the presidency is not enumerated in the list of offices that you can be disqualified for. And he was like, well, if we go that direction, it's going to mess up a whole bunch of things in con law, constitutional law. And so instead, I'm putting my weight on the idea that he's not uh, the president, as he pronounced it, is not an officer because he didn't swear the right oath. And she was like, wait, wait, don't give up on that enumerated list thing. So, yes, I thought he I was mean, really good. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in the way he dealt with the justices, the way he said, you know, I'm not making that case because it'll uh, it'll boomerang back on us. And I mean, he displayed there were lots of performative acts of or maybe genuine acts of intellectual honesty, which I would assume uh, goes over well with the justices. Let's switch to the other case. Uh, so D.C. Court of Appeals, a three judge panel in the D.C. Circuit uh, resoundingly, resoundingly rejected Trump's claim that he was immune from criminal criminal prosecution for acts he took while president. Uh, this relates, of course, to the January sixth case that Judge Tanya Chutkin is has in the in the in D.C. Uh, one of the many criminal cases that Trump faces. So, what's kind of interesting about this? We can talk briefly about the substance of the ruling. Although I think almost anyone who's looked at this has said it's ludicrous the claim that the president should not be uh, criminally liable for grotesquely criminal acts that they commit while president. So the substance I'm less interested in. And then then the kind of now the gamesmanship, because because Trump brought this case not really because he expected to win, but to to run out the clock. He's trying to prevent a criminal trial from taking place before the election. So the j- judges in this case issued a really interesting ruling, Emily, which which changes the timing and changes what may happen next. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. Legally speaking, this is a slam dunk. It was a three-judge panel. It has a Republican appointee on it, Karen Henderson. You can't be immune. They did a fine job of laying out like the eight reasons why, but they took a month to do it. And so in the interim, the previous start date of March 4th for Trump's trial got taken off of the schedule. They speeded up what's called issuing a mandate, which is when the decision actually becomes official. So, look, the big question is, like, how fast does the rest of the procedure play out? Trump gets to appeal for what's called en banc review. That would means the whole D.C. circuit. Here's the case. I mean, if they don't skip that, I don't know what to say. But then because, there's... Wait, but the reason why? Because of a really interesting reason. They shouldn't skip it normally. They shouldn't skip it. But it starts the clock again, doesn't but it? They, sh- they shouldn't. They sh- they should skip it because the judges in this case said that if they make the en banc appeal, Chutkin can go ahead with her trial while the en banc appeal is going. Yeah, which is kind of wacky. I don't totally get how that would actually work. I mean, there's. Let's say talk about it this way. There, there are just different realities to weigh here. Officially, with if there were no timing issues, if Trump wasn't trying to weigh out the clock, then sure, you have unbank review, you have Supreme Court review. Everybody takes as long as they need. We come up with the most best written version of why this immunity claim is totally bogus. In the reality in which every minute counts, you want 
this D.C. Circuit opinion to just stand. And you want the Supreme Court to say, we don't need to decide this right now. Even if there are some loose ends we should tie up for the future, we're just not going to do it because it matters that these charges get to play out before Trump can potentially just like control the Justice Department and make the whole thing go away. And I feel like you can think that's a good outcome for nonpartisan reasons? I think you can, right? You can just think like there is something wrong with a democracy that can't decide whether to hold a previous president to account because he could get back into power. There's just like, that's a problem. And the court should speed up to solve that problem. If could the Supreme Court speed that up, Emily, by just deciding to let the D.C. Circuit Court Ruling stand. Yes, absolutely. If the Supreme Court doesn't hear the case, then it will be much easier for Judge Chutkin to get this all back on track. Um, I should, I feel obligated to mention, though I know all of this is complicated enough, there is this third case out there in the wings that matters a lot. It's called United States versus Fisher. And it's like a normal old insurrectionist who got convicted of, you know, one of the people who stormed the Capitol, and he got convicted of obstructing an official proceeding based on this statute that uh, the Justice Department is relying on in hundreds of prosecutions and is relying on in part to prosecute President Trump, former President Trump. And the Supreme Court has already taken Fisher's appeal. And that probably isn't going to get resolved until June. And I feel like that also matters in this mix. So the Supreme Court term ends in July. Uh, the presidential election is in November. Is there a realistic scenario for the people who are really down and dirty wanting a, wanting a Trump trial in D.C. on these January 6th charges before the election? Is there a real, realistic scenario where there's a Supreme Court final disposition in July and which allows the prosecution to go forward and the trial actually takes place before November? Or is that I don't. That just Fantasia. seems impossible to me. I mean, I feel like if the trial is going to happen, it will be because the Supreme Court either speedily expedites its review of this immunity case or declines to hear it. It has to happen quickly. I think the Colorado ballot dispute is going to resolve quickly. I think the court in the next few weeks is going to say Trump is on the ballot everywhere and we're going to be done with that. And, you know, if they let the immunity question like linger for a long time, that itself is going to look like a form of political gamesmanship on their part. And also because it is there, is it from just an intellectual standpoint, are there issues that really need to be uh, weighed and sifted from the Supreme Court's standpoint on this immunity question? Is it a tough call, regardless of what your opinion of it is? I mean, I don't really think so. Jack Goldsmith, who is a Harvard law professor I have a lot of respect for, wrote a piece about this thing called the plain statement rule, which has to do with like when you know that a statute Congress passed applies to the president. And Jack thinks there's a real question there. That's like the only thing I see out there. In On immunity? Yeah, in the immunity case. That's like the only thing I see out there that seems to me like, oh, maybe they really have some work to do here. And um so I don't know, in my own head, I wanted to immediately disregard it. Uh, it just seems like there are so many ways to say that, of course, a president cannot have immunity forever from criminal prosecution for every single thing he does in office. Like that cannot be right. In November 2021, 15-year-old Ethan Crumley murdered four schoolmates and wounded seven others in Oxford, Michigan, with a Sig Sauer that his parents had given him as a present 
an early Christmas present four days earlier. Ethan Crumley was tried as an adult and sentenced to life in prison for these killings. This week, his mother, Jennifer, was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for her role in the murders. Essentially, she was found to have been negligent to the point of guilt in ignoring signs of his mental fragility, allowing him to attend school even after he expressed uh, alarming, dangerous thoughts, uh, buying him a gun and encouraging his gun habit, and failing to ensure that the gun was safely stored out of his reach. Ethan's father will go on trial later for some of the same charges, also attempting to hold him culpable, particularly around the gun purchase, which he he was uh, central to. Jennifer faces 15 years in prison, and it's kind of a landmark case, Emily. Yeah, it is. This idea of holding parents responsible, of finding them culpable for a child shooting, there are a couple of sort of related cases, but they're not um, they're not the same. They're not about a teenager. And, you know, I think the question at the heart of the case is, were should these parents have known what a danger their child presented? Were they being so so negligent in their care for him that they missed these warning signs that they clearly should have seen? And I think for me, the most heartbreaking part was that Ethan Crumbly texted to a friend that my parents won't help me with that. Like I, I need help or therapy, but my parents won't listen. Now, Jennifer Crumbly said she didn't know about those texts and that Ethan hadn't talked to her about wanting therapy. But even that just starts to make you think like what was going on with these relationships. At the same time, I think as parents of teenagers, lots of people know sometimes your kids like become walled off to you and you don't know what's happening. And you can be trying and failing. And it's really hard to know what goes on inside a family. I mean, I read a lot about this case and the evidence in it, and I still felt uncertain. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously horrific for the crumbly parents, independent of whether they are criminally prosecuted and charged, to live with the knowledge that they didn't do enough to help their child and their child's life is ruined. And more importantly, that four children are dead. Um, And so they would have to live with that guilt. The question is like, do they, does criminal punishment help if the goal is justice? Does the criminal punishment help if their goal is deterrence for future acts? John, do you think we know? Well, I think the making parents culpable for and responsible for them, the securing of firearms, which I think is part of this also for their kids is important like that. You cannot know the emotional state of your child, but you can know whether a gun is locked up and whether they have access to it. Um, and being a steward of the firearm is, I think, the key is the is the thing that's knowable and should come with responsibilities um, and the parents. And so I think that might be both a place where you'd get even legislation to come out of this uh, or, or I think a place where um you could find or see a pathway created to future um, judgments along these lines. Well, the laws in Michigan at the time were pretty lax about securing guns from adolescents. And of course, the Crumley family is not the only family that has a gun habit. Um, but I totally agree with you, John. I think even independent of whether the law is, if the question is, is like, are parents negligent when they don't pay attention to this? It's very, uh, it's very rich, very sickening to me for people who are constantly talking about responsible gun ownership to say, well, law didn't, you know, law didn't say anything. And so therefore parents shouldn't be held. There should be no culpability for parents when clearly it was deeply negligent 
for these parents to not secure this gun, to not know where it was, to not have have taken even the remotest, tiniest precaution to make sure that their child wasn't wasn't uh, using it in some way that he shouldn't have. And that I agree. I mean, that part of it, the the mental state of the child piece of it, and the inaccessibility seems to me much harder to litigate, much harder to to charge a parent around that because I think children and parents live in different separate worlds and children can be islands to their parents. But that piece of it, I a hundred percent agree. If there's going to be criminal culpability, it starts with, with how they treated the gun. We should note that Michigan passed a safe storage act after this crime, but we don't have a federal act like that. Also, if you make the case every time there's one of these shootings, that it's a mental health crisis, the closest touch point for the connection between mental health issues and guns is the parent. Those who study this argue that you should have, you know, just flood the schools with with counselors and um, give kids access to counselors for all of the traumas that kids grow up with. And some of them are the traumas that end up leading to school shootings, like that there's a mental health crisis that needs dealing with. And if you have a system in place, that will actually help in terms of the the angst and anguish that a lot of these young men go through that ends up leading to school shootings. But if you are the kind of person who wants to protect gun ownership and says it's a mental health crisis every time there's a big shooting, it seems to me the logical conclusion is that the connection between parent and child through the ownership of the gun is the closest way um, to both protect freedom and get at that mental health piece. So legislation um, that makes parents or or enforces, you know, smart gun uh, hygiene and makes parents responsible for that creates a connection between the parent and child that presumably would be one that again, in the mindset of people who always talk about mental health, presumably that connection through the firearm would allow parents to be in a position to make an assessment about their child's mental health. I, I mean, I wonder if the jury in this case was, if they were voting because they believed the parents had been had been negligent from a mental health perspective and had not paid attention to warning signs, had been bad parents in that way, or because they believed the parents had been negligent when it came to the guns. Because you can get, you can imagine both of the narratives you're talking about, John, are fulfilled by this case. And you can kind of pick which one you want, depending on where you're coming from. And so as somebody who believes that guns are the accelerant, guns are the amplifier, guns are the problem, I would have, my, my, I would have come down on the gun side. Somebody else might come down on the, well, no, these were parents who just didn't look out for their child and should have known better. And therefore they're criminally culpable for that. Right. You can see gross negligence and the jury doesn't have to agree on the reason for it necessarily. There was also a lot of character assassination evidence in this case about the mom having affairs and being super into the horse that she owned that kind of smeared her. And she had a moment where she was asked about her own parenting and she said that she wouldn't do anything differently, which I mean, you could imagine her just losing the jury in that moment. Right. Like that. It's really hard to fathom that. I also just kept trying to think from the point of view of the families of the children who were killed, because obviously they matter a great deal on this. And I don't, it's just hard to know. I mean, this is a wider form of retribution. People care about that sometimes. It's also possible that, you know, you would take comfort in feeling like there's a deterrence message here, that you're putting people on notice who are not committing shootings, but could be in a position to prevent them either because of the gun safety concerns you all are talking about or for these other, you know, 
less coherent but pressing matters of teen mental health. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll be it's going to be curious to see whether this whether other prosecutors pick this up. There, the prosecutor in this case, Karen McDonald, um, the district attorney, kept emphasizing that she thought that this was like a very um, unusual set of where she had a lot of evidence um, that pointed to the her, the parents' responsibility. But in this age where there are so many text messages, et cetera, maybe that isn't going to prove so unusual. Emily, before we go, I wonder what you make it about of one of the paradoxes at the heart of this case, which is that his, his parents have been tried. Jennifer Crumley has now been convicted and his father, Ethan's father will be tried because they were culpable for being negligent parents. At the same time, Ethan Crumley was tried as an adult and ha- found to be fully culpable, even though he was only 15. It does seem paradoxical to say that you're fully culpable and fully culpable adult. And then to say, no, it's actually your parents' fault. I mean, does it does seem like a to kind of double dipping the well of, of, of uh, jail there, of prison. I mean, absolutely. And Ethan Crumley has a life sentence without parole because he was tried as an adult. So, yes, then to say, well, actually, you know, for purposes of this second criminal matter, you're a child and your parents have responsibility. I mean, there is like a, a, there's a paradox, a contradiction, a double standard there. Absolutely. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Man, this is not, I will not be cocktail chattering about the Crumley case at my cocktail parties. Um, let's see if there's something else to chatter about John Dickerson that is perhaps sunnier and brighter in the world. Well, you know me. I love hidden stuff discovered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later that unlocks some cool thing about the past. Um, and one of the latest examples of that is. Um, the use of artificial intelligence to read um, papyrus scrolls held in um, uh, in Pompeii that were ruined by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, the you know burned, uh, clotted with heat, just totally messed up. So they used AI to look at one of these charred scrolls and distinguish between burnt ink and burnt papyrus. And in so doing, they were able to read this scroll, which looks basically uh, like a hunk of driftwood that's been underwater for 500 years. Um, and so they were actually to actually able to read it. Like, it's amazing. The words that are on there, lost forever to time, not lost forever to time. One of the things they were able to read was um, uh, was a Philodemus, a um, uh, a philosopher who uh, was writing about food and wrote, as to in the case of food, we do not right away believe things that are scarce to be absolutely more pleasant than those which are abundant, which is, you know, a simple thing to say. But one of the things I love about the philosophers of antiquity is, because they were writing things down for the first time and didn't have, you know, mountains of books um, to refer to about the thinking about human behavior, they were writing about, you know, the simplest things like whether scarcity makes something more delicious. Just because, you know, sea urchin is harder to get doesn't mean it's more delicious than the burger I can get at the bodega across the street. Um, they also... There were lots of bodegas in Vesuvius. Yes, exactly. Um, the um, Somebody's going to write in and say, well, you know, actually, they did have a form of a bodega, which is... Um, anyway, but um, 
He also took a jab at the Stoics who are, you know, having a moment. I don't know if you guys come across Stoic um, quotations, philosophy, and just general Stoic boosterism as much as I do, but it feels like, you know, 60% of the refrigerators in America right now have a Stoic phrase taped up on them by someone. And Philodemus um, takes a jab at the Stoics saying that um, the school of thought was not um, valid because they have nothing to say about pleasure. The point of all of this is, oh my gosh, the amount of cool stuff that's going to be found in, you know, scrolls that we, that people thought were lost because they were ruined. John, I want to thank you for a chatter from a couple of weeks ago where you recommended Moss and Fog. Uh, I am now a subscriber to the Moss and Fog email list. And man, does that bring a kill shot of joy to me every day. It is amazing. Thank you for that. I suggest anyone who wants a little extra joy to subscribe to that. All right. I'm going to have to sign up for Moss and Fog as soon as this segment ends. And one other personal log rolling uh, moment here. Um, uh, this past week, I, I uh, gave the Teddy White lecture at the Shorenstein Center at Harvard um, and talked um, at length, I think I would say, uh, about the press's role in covering um, the presidency and um, and this 2024 race in particular. Um, there were some GabFest uh, f- fans, listeners in the audience, so um, – they said how much they liked the show, David and Emily, so that was nice. Um, but anyway, it was the product of a lot of long thought, and um, I was really grateful to be asked to do it by my former colleague, Nancy Gibbs. Um, so if you are uh, interested in the coverage of the presidency in a presidential campaign year, um, go over to YouTube and uh, look for the Shorenstein Center um, uh, Theodore White lecture. Emily, what will you be chattering about? As some listeners know, I am really interested in the um, safety and effectiveness record of abortion pills. And there is lots of research about how safe and effective they are, and a small number of studies that have called that into question. This week, two of the studies that um, emphasize the risks of abortion pills were retracted by their publisher. This is Sage Publications, which runs a whole bunch of scientific journals. Somebody wrote in to Sage Publications and said, hey, I think the way this data is presented looks fishy. And did you know that two of the authors of this study um, work for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is a pro-life organization, and another one has other pro-life ties? And then it turned out that one of the reviewers of the article also worked for Charlotte Lozier. Anyway, um, the journal retracted the articles and explained that the way the data had been presented was misleading um, in a way that made it lost faith in the publications. The authors um, put together an interesting point-by-point rebuttal. So if you're really interested in the kind of specifics, um, I recommend going down that rabbit hole and reading it. But I was mostly struck by two things. So the study, the main study was about emergency room visits. And there's sort of a basic critique here, which is that going to the ER doesn't necessarily mean that something terrible has happened to you. You might go because you don't have um, other health care, especially with abortion pills, um, because you might you probably are not getting them from your OBGYN or your primary care doctor, unfortunately. So um, that was kind of interesting in itself. The other thing is just this issue of retraction, like scientific studies that are not really well done and how good peer review really is at catching mistakes and problems and making sure that only really sound research is being published. So anyway, interesting development on that front. My chatter, actually, 
relates to our previous topic, I suppose. It's about the death of a teenager and parents, sort of where, where how parents fit into it. Amazing story by Patrick Radden Keefe. You may know him as the author of Say Nothing, the great book about uh, the troubles in Ireland and his book about the Sacklers, also an incredible book about the opioid e- epidemic and the Sackler family's involvement. He's just written a new story for the New Yorker, a teen's fatal plunge into the London underworld. It's a much smaller topic, but it's about a a teenager named Zach Brettler who was from a you know well-off but not wealthy family in London and ended up uh, posing as the son of a Russian oligarch and ended up getting involved with some incredibly dark people and then dying under extremely suspicious circumstances. Um, and it's just a fascinating, sad story, which has a really great portrait of a, a demimonde in London that sounds awful uh, and that I would hope I'm never in. Listeners, you sent us a bunch of good chatters this week. A bunch. I do mean a bunch. I actually picked out three that I really liked, but we can only chatter one. There can only be one listener chatter, but please keep them coming to gapfest at slate.com. Email them to us. And this week's listener chatter comes from Patrick Johnson of Anchorage, Alaska. Hello, GapFest. This is Patrick Johnson from Anchorage, Alaska. My chatter comes from an Alaska public media story about a rare white raven with striking blue eyes that has created a ravenous Anchorage paparazzi. Ravens, with their typical dark black feathers, are a common presence in South Central Alaska. However, this bird, with what biologists describe as holding a unique gene causing a lack of pigmentation, has captured hearts. The paparazzi has snapped regal photos of the raven perched on the branch of a spruce tree as the moon rises in the backdrop. However, there are many other less regal photos capturing the realities of urban raven life, including a series of pictures of the bird in a spat with four black ravens over a discarded carton of white raspberry chocolate truffle ice cream. In the last photo in the series, the white raven shows off its prize. This rare bird and its devoted followers have brought me and our community much joy, and I wanted to share that joy with the GabFest. That's our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio of Slate. Decided to read everything exactly as it's scripted here today, unlike most weeks. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, David Plotz, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Man. So I did not watch much of the Grammys, but I did turn it on. I flipped on the Grammys kind of at a random moment on Sunday evening. And I happened, it happened to be at a moment that brought me such sublime joy. It was the moment to have turned it on, at least if you're a middle-aged person, which was that all of a sudden there was a close-up of a hand playing a guitar. And when we drew back from that hand, it became clear that it was Tracy Chapman. The song was Fast Car and that behind her a little bit side stage was Luke Combs. And they performed uh, Fast Car um, to an audience of, of millions. Chapman's original recording of that song was acclaimed when she released it in the late 80s, just in time for Plots and Bazelon and, 
and Dickerson, I suppose, college dorm room listening. Certainly a lot of plots college dorm room listening. And last year, Luke Combs, a country star who I adore, released a note-for-note cover of the song and took it to country number one. It won all kinds of accolades for himself and for Chapman. Their Grammy duet was amazing. And, um, you know, to me, it was, you know, Chapman's, Chapman's just serenity and sort of calm and grace in performance was extraordinary. And Combs's obvious reverence for her and sort of making sure that she, the spotlight was on her was was wonderful. And the song is just is one of the great songs of the world. It's one of the great songs of our lifetime ever written. Um, and to hear these two wonderful artists perform it was it was sublime. And it was the, certainly the grace note of my week. So what are we going to t- say about it? Well, we should say there was when Combs got to number one on the country charge, there was some backlash, not against him exactly, but against the idea that it had to be this white country singer singing the song in order for that to happen, that Tracy Chapman wouldn't have had that particular accolade. And then, you know, at least for me, I had a similar transported feeling watching them. And it was because of his deep appreciation and I saw some social media post of someone saying this is the difference between appropriation and appreciation, just like the look in his eyes, the way he was making so clear that this was, you know, her grand work that he was participating in. Reverence is the difference. Reverence is the difference between appropriation and appreciation. Well, I was also thinking about, you know, whether he asked her permission. I know that he had to pay royalties to play the song, but do you guys know? That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.